Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy. And I'm Leah Kaufman. Before we begin, I'd like to invite our listeners to tell us more about them so that we can bring them the interviews and the information they'd like to hear. We hope listeners will take a few minutes to complete the survey on our website at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. All survey respondents will be entered into a drawing for a cozy McGowan Institute police vest. Thanks, Leah. And today we have the pleasure of having Dr. Kamineva and Dr. Fetterspill, who are scientists at the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine, join us for an interesting discussion with Leah. Both doctors are interested in problems with blood. Dr. Fetterspiel is working on devices that will do the job of the lungs, helping to keep blood oxygenated when lungs need a break. Dr. Kamineva is working on additives to blood substitution products that help blood keep tissues oxygenated when there's just a small amount of it, say when someone is suffering from hemorrhagic shock. Let's go ahead and hear that interview now. Here we are today with Drs. Fetterspiel and Kamineva at the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine. And though it seems like they may work on disparate problems, they actually are working to help people who have suffered from serious traumas to survive that initial injury. So, Dr. Fetterspiel, tell me first what problem you're working to solve. Well, we're working on a variety of different uh, problems. One of the biggest areas we've been interested in for many years is the area of providing breathing support uh, for patients that have uh, immediate short-term lung failure. So these would, by and large, be patients that have, um, they may have a chronic condition, but they get some, like emphysema, but they get some, uh, some insult on that condition. For example, they might get a cold or, or uh, flu or uh, inhale um, or aspirate something into their lungs, and their lungs temporarily are further damaged, and they require some breathing support to get them over the crisis. So most of the technologies that we develop in that area are geared towards treating patients for uh, probably something on the order of seven to seven to fourteen days. We also are are starting work on uh, uh, treatment strategies for patients that have sepsis, which is another important uh, medical condition uh, that is common in the intensive care unit, and mortality is very high. It's a very complex. Uh, it's a very complex problem, and we are combining um, a variety of different approaches, including mathematical modeling, immunological uh, modeling, and device development to treat that type of problem. Now, I know mechanical ventilators have been around for a long time. How is your approach different? Mm-hmm. Our approach, the key difference is that uh, we believe the way to uh, improve upon treatment of patients that have the short-term lung failure is to provide breathing assist independently of the lungs. Mechanical ventilators, uh, as you know, uh, take an injured lung and, and basically uh, force it in an unnatural manner to uh, bring gas uh, enriched perhaps with oxygen in and out of the lungs. So the lungs are breathing under a positive pressure, or sometimes the parts of the lungs can become over-distended and damaged from the ventilator. Um, in, in layperson's terms, we like to say it's the equivalent uh, of going to an orthopedic 
uh, person and uh, you have a broken leg and they tell you to go out and run on that broken leg. Mm -hmm. So we believe in resting the lungs and to do that we're developing technologies that provide breathing support independently of the lungs by directly adding oxygen and, carbon and removing carbon dioxide uh, from, from the bloodstream. Okay. Dr. Kamineva, speaking of blood, well, <laughs> tell me a bit about the problem you're working to solve. Well, uh, the problem which we try to solve is uh, treatment of people who lost a lot of blood and uh, due to this loss they have very low blood pressure, very low blood flow through tissue and organs. And uh, uh, currently, if you look at the ambulance, which is rushing to the place of accident, and uh, you, you will not see any blood replacement, uh, such as uh, donor blood or artificial blood. There's no artificial blood available in the United States. Uh, and the only liquid which they bring uh, with ambulance uh, to the accident place or to the battlefield is uh, salty water, saline. So, and uh, they give this water to a, a victim uh, or patient, and uh, they try to push this water as much as they can to maintain blood pressure and to try to restore uh, tissue perfusion. And uh, if the bleeding was really serious. It's, it's practically impossible to do this. So we uh, uh, developed the uh, special blood-soluble polymers, long-chain polymers, which can significantly improve properties of this uh, resuscitation fluid and provide uh, uh, increased enhancement in microcirculation uh, in oxygen delivery and uh, most important in removal of uh, carbon dioxide and other waste products. And we tested already this uh, novel resuscitation fluid in animal models and the results were, were very encouraging. And we published a few papers on these results and uh, uh, we hope that uh, this new resuscitation fluid will help a lot because it's, uh, uh, it's possible to use it at very small volume and get uh, pretty positive results. Would it be an additive <coughs> to the saline that's carried on ambulances now? Well, it can be an additive to saline or maybe to some other colloidal solutions or even to uh, some uh, oxygen carriers which are under development right now in this country and they still uh, cannot pass uh, FDA, uh, you know, the board. And uh, uh, some of them are in clinical trials, but uh, they still have a lot of problems. And we hope that our polymers will help these products to uh, get into uh, market. I've heard the phrase drag-reducing polymer used, and I think um, it's interesting the other thing, the other act, active ingredient, or at least a component of your work, is the aloe plant. Is that right? Right. Can you tell right. us a little so, bit about that? Sure. Uh, the phenomenon, so-called drug-reducing phenomenon, was discovered about 60 years ago. And I, I think, I personally think it's one of the most exciting discoveries of last century. 
And uh, the phenomenon is that if you add very tiny amount, nanomolar concentration of uh, special polymers, soluble polymers into flowing fluid, you can reduce resistance to flow in a pipe by up to 90%. And this discovery was uh, uh, done in pure engineering environment. It was hydraulic uh, environment, and, uh, and the polymers were not even water-soluble. It was polymethylmetacrylate, and it was dissolved in monochlorobenzene. So, but later, some water-soluble drug-reducing polymers were discovered, and a little bit later, in uh, end of 60s, uh, some people decided to try these polymers uh, in blood circulation. And uh, it was found that a very small amount of these polymers injected into blood can significantly change hemodynamics, increase blood flow and uh, tissue perfusion and in normal animals and in some uh, pathological conditions. For example, just recently we uh, were working with cardiology department here at the University of Pittsburgh with uh, Dr. Lisa Villanueva uh, on her model of myocardial infarction. And we show that uh, at the conditions of occluded coronary artery, injection of small amount of these polymers into animal uh, in, improved very significantly myocardial perfusion. And uh, the results of these studies uh, will be soon published in European Heart Journal. Mm -hmm. So it's extremely important finding. I, I'm beginning to see how these two issues link together in some other ways, too, that I know that blood moving through artificial devices is sort of an unsolved problem or is a problem that people are working on very hard um, in medical device development because devices are pretty hard on blood, aren't they? And you get clotting right. problems and whatnot. So can your, not, not just for keeping tissues oxygenated, but can your technology be combined, Dr. Kamineva, with your technology, Dr. Fedospiel, and other device technologies to help solve this problem? Well, potentially, uh, yes. I mean, it, it really has not, not been explored, but, you know, there's the potential that uh, those agents may have, you know, some beneficial effect on how these devices may operate. And the, um, I think the, you know, one of the key drivers in a lot of the research we do is always keeping in mind um, what it's going to take to get something out in the marketplace. And Device developers uh, typically like to uh, focus on using materials that have already been approved or uh, or the FDA has has looked over. So, um, in, in for example, in commercializing some of the technology, you know, from our laboratory, uh, which we've begun to do through uh, through a company in Pittsburgh called Alung Technologies, we. Um, we focused on trying to uh, trying to make the device, you know, as simple as possible using uh, known um, using known materials of the FDA and and try to make the device as similar to other devices, and that allows the device to be translated to clinical use earlier. So I think I, I think there is the potential up the road. I think the uh, once the, the 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 polymer is approved for use. Um, 
uh, at that time that would be it would be a very interesting to study to then combine it with our device which would be approved to, for use uh, as well and the um, the ability to get that clinical study approved would um, would be uh, much easier at that time now you mentioned dr. Kamenevig use on the battlefield um, to help people who have lost a lot of blood do, dr. Federspiel do you have a device that's suitable for, ba or you hope to be suitable for battlefield use as well? We, we have um, uh, developed a, a pretty good relationship with the, uh, some uh, people in the Army uh, through a variety of different Department of Defense grants. Um, and w the device that um, we, we now have uh, basically translated two devices out of laboratory for commercialization. And these devices are in the process of being evaluated uh, by some collaborators at the Army Institute of Surgical uh, Research in San Antonio. And they're looking at how these devices could treat, potentially treat uh, soldiers that have been exposed to um, gases, including potentially chemical and biological agents that, that disrupt the lungs. So they have, uh, they have various models there they use to study this, and we have uh, basically um, uh, begun collaborating with them using these models to uh, evaluate whether uh, either of our two devices that we are commercializing would be beneficial to them. Now, it's unlikely to be on the very far forward battlefield, uh, but would be uh, used uh, probably in, uh, at the sort of second level back on the battlefield. I see. And um, in terms of clinical trials, how far along are you folks with the artificial lung technology? We have uh, approval with one device to do a compassionate use study in the United Kingdom. Uh, and that study really is in the process of enrolling patients, but we have not enrolled any patients yet. The second device uh, will probably have a much easier clinical pathway, and that device is uh, probably uh, about, uh, will be in clinical trials, uh, a pilot clinical trial is planned for that device in the early part of 2007. Great. Without getting into some of the difficulties lately concerning um, trials of blood substitution products, um, Dr. Kamenema, how close is your group to using your polymers in human patients? Well, uh, I, I think uh, Two of our drug addition polymers, uh, one uh, which we found in aloe vera, and another one, uh, hyaluronic acid, which actually is approved by FDA for many, many clinical applications, uh, can be uh, translated to clinics pretty uh, fast. And I think the major problem is the support. We need to find some company or, you know, uh, some source of uh, funding for uh, preclinical trials. Because these polymers are natural, and uh, I, I don't see any problems with their kind of, you know, invasion into uh, market. So you're not introducing a sort of brand new molecule that's never before Right. Been used right. in humans. So, I mean, aloe vera is very well known for a thousand years, and the only uh, problem here 
could be that uh, it it's not used in uh, for intravenous injection, mm -hmm. and these polymers can produce their effects only when they inject it intravenously, because Wh the molecule is very big; it cannot go through the tissue the muscle. Uh, I'm interested in the mechanism of uh, of your work, Dr. Kamineva. It's is it as if the polymer is permitting blood to be sort of more slippery and get into, you know, areas of tissues. Even though there's less of it, it can still reach areas and oxygenate them. Uh, well, uh, the mechanism. Uh, it, first of all, it's not uh, well known yet, and uh, I believe the mechanism is quite complex. It's not just one mechanism because these polymers produced even what we know for right now. They produced variety of effects on hemodynamics. First of all, they are able to reduce flow separations uh, at bifurcations or curvatives of vessels and reduce uh, the energy loss uh, during blood flow from uh, heart to the tissue to the capillaries. So, and by doing this, they can increase precapillary blood pressure and uh, improve perfusion, increase number of functioning capillaries, and uh, provide much better tissue perfusion, tissue and organ perfusion. Another mechanism we found recently that polymers directly affect uh, red blood cell distribution in the vascular uh, system. And uh, uh, this effect can be observed in very small vessels, uh, arterioles with size uh, below 200 micron. And uh, without the polymers, the normal, uh, normal blood circulation conditions, we have a near wall plasma layer uh, in all these vessels. It's so-called Farrell's Lindquist phenomenon, which was discovered long time ago. And uh, uh, physiological meaning of this phenomenon is still unknown. And, but by having this plasma layer near vessel wall, at each bifurcation, we get more plasma flowing into a branch uh, vessel than uh, red blood cells, and it's so-called plasma scheming effect. So as a result, the amount of red, number of red blood cells flowing into branches uh, is getting uh, smaller and smaller, and uh, concentration of red blood cells in uh, capillaries is actually about 50% of our systemic uh, concentration of red blood cells, hematocrit. So, uh, and this is fine for normally functioning uh, system, but uh, if uh, we have severe bleeding and blood pressure goes down and uh, tissue perfusion goes down and this uh, plasma scheming phenomenon will cause very significant uh, decrease in concentration of red blood cells in capillaries. And uh, we uh, demonstrated that our polymers can reduce this near wall plasma layer or even eliminate it completely. So, and by doing this, they uh, eliminate plasma scheming effect. So red blood cells are getting directed into branches at the same concentration as in the main uh, vessel. And considering hemorrhage or hemorrhagic shock, this kind of effect can be considered as an 
autotransfusion. We take red blood cells from central circulation and bring them into small vessels, into capillaries. So we increase number of uh, red blood cells in uh, microvessels. And uh, this is another phenomenon which, uh, to tell the truth, we even don't know the mechanisms of this phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are some other hypotheses about effects of uh, drug-inducing polymers. We still call them drug-inducing polymers, but I, I think the major point that they have very special viscoelastic properties, which uh, enable them to produce all these effects. Mm -hmm. So even though you have fewer red blood cells, which are the oxygen carriers in our blood, they're, they're uh, reaching those critical very small capillaries feeding tissues all over the body, rather than, in a trauma, is it true that blood would normally be primarily shunted to major organs so that it was right. keeping it, them it going? But I imagine that if you were starving other tissues of oxygen, that would feed the cycle of shock, because tissues would begin to break down. And, but if you're keeping everything perfused well, you can probably bring somebody through a shock situation in much better shape. Right. Okay. So the major point at the, at the condition of hemorrhagic shock, blood flows in central vessels mm -hmm. and does not go into uh, tissue and organs. Gotcha. So. Okay. Dr. Federspiel, tell me something about the mechanism of your artificial lung technology. I think it's fascinating that you're just bypassing lungs. You're, you're feeding oxygen into blood without the benefit of it. Well, it's still passing through lungs, but you're not forcing lungs to do the work. How does that work exactly? The, uh, the principle is, um, is based on uh, technology that really is already used quite a bit in this country um, during open heart surgery. When uh, patients have uh, open heart surgery, uh, their blood is pumped outside the body. Uh, it bypasses the heart and natural lungs and is pumped through uh, what people oftentimes refer to as a heart-lung machine outside the body. The lung part of that machine uh, is a module that's composed of uh, thousands of very, very tiny fibers. And uh, these fibers, um, uh, the inside of these fibers are hollow. And so the, the modules uh, are designed uh, to provide gas flow through these fibers through the inside of these fibers. And blood is passed on the outside of the fibers. And because the fibers are, are basically made of a plastic material, oxygen uh, can move into the bloodstream uh, from within the fiber. And carbon dioxide is basically adsorbed or moves into the fiber uh, and is removed from the blood that way. So what we've done is we've taken that technology, again, because the these hollow fiber membranes are, are uh, known materials and approved for use in, in these devices with blood. And we've, uh, we've basically designed different types of modules that um, are more effective at removing CO2 and introducing oxygen into the bloodstream. And the goal is to provide a technology, not uh, in the patients that we need to treat. We don't have to replace the function of their lung. They always will have some remaining lung function. We just need to supplement or boost the function of the lung. So we don't need to uh, provide as much um, oxygen to the blood and remove as much carbon dioxide as these devices that are used for, for heart-lung machines. So that enables us to design smaller devices 
one of the devices is designed to actually be inserted into the body and to reside within a large vein in the body uh, and again would be used for seven to ten days and the other de device is designed to be used outside the body in a wearable fashion, what people refer to as paracorporeal, but a device that could be worn and allow a patient, um, you know, some ambulation um, and, and uh, provide them breathing support until their lungs return back to a normal function. Do you see down the road these being used for longer term support, say, for people with chronic lung disease, they can yeah, ab absolutely. go home with them, go shopping, live their lives. Absolutely. I think with time, as these devices are being used, because for the most part, there's not a lot of uh, artificial lung devices that are used uh, more than uh, several hours. Uh, it's not very common to use these types of devices uh, for very long. Uh, we are working on uh, some strategies to uh, make the surface of these fibers. And as I said, there's a lot of fibers in these devices. And normally blood likes to clot when it, when it encounters a foreign looking uh, surface. And that's always a problem with any device that is in contact with blood. So we're, uh, we are working as part of the development of this device and other devices, uh, we are working uh, to uh, develop a uh, surface on these fibers that has a uh, natural anticoagulant that would um, uh, keep the blood from tending to clot onto the surface of the device. And as, that, as, as we make progress in that area, I envision that the devices we're developing will be able to be used for longer periods of time and would eventually be used to, uh, probably in the beginning, to bridge patients to a lung transplant, uh, which is a, a serious problem right now because of the shortage of donor uh, lungs uh, related to relative to the number of people that required lung transplants. And uh, our devices would allow s these patients to be supported while they're waiting for a lung transplant. But ultimately, I think, given the technology platform today, I think that the transplant will, all, will still always be the best option for these patients long term. But more of them will survive to get to the point where they can be transplanted. Yes, very like. analogously to uh, the use of how artificial hearts have been used, uh, so-called ventricular assist devices, to bridge uh, patients to heart transplants. We envision that uh, with some time, these devices could be used in a similar role for lung transplant. And interestingly, in the area of heart transplantation, uh, it, w it has been found that uh, Many of these patients that were bridged with, uh, with blood pumps, uh, their hearts actually improved and ultimately were not, did not require a heart transplant. And uh, potentially we may find, especially as drug treatments of chronic conditions in the lung improve, that we may be able to um, use the device to support a patient while they're undergoing some sort of pharmacological treatment, drug treatment for for their chronic condition, whether it's emphysema or chronic bronchitis, uh, and uh, eventually uh, may not require a lung transplant. And, that but that's great. looking quite a bit up the road. Dr. Kamineva, what's the next step <coughs> for you in your work with drag reducing polymers? Still need to uh, find out what are the mechanisms of the drug reducing polymers effect on blood circulation. I believe that this is extremely important for you know further 
progress of uh, this new method of affecting of blood circulation. Uh, and I, I, I really hope with, with this development of resuscitation fluid, since we are quite successful in uh, this process, uh, we probably will get this, uh, this application of drug-reducing polymers uh, first to be approved for, for use. But, uh, of course, there are many other applications. For example, we showed in uh, the small animal studies that uh, polymers can improve microcirculation in diabetes. Mm. And this is a huge you know, application sure. because, as you know, that the impairment of uh, blood circulation, microcirculation, is one of the major complications of diabetes. People, eventually, many of them lose limbs for that reason. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And uh, we have proven that uh, drug reducing polymers can significantly help with this problem. Interesting. So both of you may have applications for your technology that will help people with chronic conditions, though originally slated for short-term use. That's very exactly. interesting. Exactly. Okay. And what are the next steps for you, Dr. Federspiel? Well, we, um, <clears throat> we are, uh, in, in terms of the technology, uh, as I mentioned, we have moved it all over outside the university laboratory, some of it, and have uh, developed it into really a medical device, and it's quite Remarkable to see how a you know how a device that initially was was built and tested in in, in the laboratory oftentimes by graduate students um, can be transformed uh, by medical uh, professional engineers uh, into uh, into something that looks really like uh, something you would see in a hospital. Um, the the clinical trials of that device will uh, will occur next year, and uh, we we hope for a good outcome in the in the pilot trial that would enable uh, it to go to uh, pivotal clinical trials. At the same time, in the laboratory, we're uh, constantly working on trying to um, improve upon that general technology. In medical devices, I always say that uh, smaller and uh, faster is always better. You know, if you look at a technology like a dialysis machine. Uh, it started out um, uh, sometime around uh, between World War One and World War Two in Germany, and the, and the device was as large as a washing machine, and uh, now it's conned down to a, quite a compact uh, unit. Uh, same with artificial hearts. They've gone from very large uh, machines, like the ones people remember Barney Clark being attached to, to uh, small blood pumps that can fit in the palm of your hand, and pacemakers is another example, and they become very miniaturized. So we're interested in, in uh, improving the performance of our devices so that we can make them smaller, more compact, and require less blood contact surface area. So we've been working on a variety of fronts there in, in involving um, using uh, some natural proteins and, and incorporating them within the design of the device, and these are proteins that that we've just shown in the lab can improve the, 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 uh, the rate at which these devices can extract carbon dioxide from the blood. We've been working in the area of microfabrication using uh, techniques that have been really evolved from the semiconductor industry to miniaturize uh, these artificial lung constructs. Uh, and that's a very long-term project, but, but offers the hope that up the road um, we may be able to design a, a device that can uh, perform the function of the lung and, and actually 
uh, be as compact as the lung is. The lung is a remarkable organ for gas exchange because it has a surface area of contact between blood and gas that is uh, it's huge. It's about the size of a tennis court, but the lung is packaged in a very compact organ. And man-made technology right now is nowhere near that, and we hope that these microfabrication techniques perhaps may allow us to move closer to uh, nature's technology. Mm -hmm. Is there anything I've missed, Dr. Kamineva, about your work that you wanted to mention? Well, uh, right now we see some uh, new applications for drug-reducing polymers, which are not actually related to the ability to reduce resistance to turbulent flow uh, at all. Uh, we started to study effect of these polymers on uh, uh, tissue regeneration, angiogenesis, and uh, we have very interesting results. They are not published yet, mm -hmm. and uh, they're, but they are promising, and we hope that uh, these polymers will help significantly in the process of wound healing and in the process of uh, tissue engineering engineering and tissue regeneration. So it's kind of, you know, new direction in uh, development of these polymers. We'll have to have you back then to tell us more later. And sure. Dr. Federspiel, is there anything I've missed about your work that you'd like to mention? Well, generally, um, uh, the, the types of things that, uh, that our laboratory is interested <coughs> in are uh, what I refer to as devices that are designed to either put something in blood or remove something from blood. And we've gotten We've gotten good at understanding those types of problems and how to design them for, uh, to be uh, effective devices. And so we, we've been branching out into other areas now. For example, we have a NIH grant uh, to develop a device that removes certain antibodies from the bloodstream that cause a form of organ rejection called hyperacute organ rejection. And that's a, that's a type of organ rejection that um, that uh, occurs when, uh, when the blood types of the uh, donor uh, and the recipient are not matched. Normally, blood types are matched when you, when you uh, transplant organs, uh, but uh, sometimes, uh, uh, actually sometimes it occurs uh, through error, as occurred uh, uh, several years ago down at Duke Medical Center in a heart transplant case. But uh, more and more clinicians are looking at doing uh, incompatible uh, transplants and they use uh, a certain technique where they exchange uh, the person's plasma, blood plasma, before the operation. And they've shown that they can uh, actually do these transplants uh, successfully. So we're developing a device now that would directly move the, those specific antibodies from the bloodstream and leave all the other beneficial proteins and beneficial antibodies in the bloodstream. And so that's an example of uh, taking what we learned and how to move things in and out of blood and turning it onto a different problem. And as I mentioned earlier, we're now starting to develop a device for treating sepsis. Sepsis is a major problem, and it has to do with certain molecules that are in your bloodstream uh, that cause massive inflammation. And people die not from the infection that, that started the sepsis, but they die from their body's natural defense system essentially going uh, haywire, overboard. So we are developing a device that will uh, se uh, selectively uh, target removal of those molecules in, in a certain pattern that, uh, that uh, will 
be chosen to improve the outcome of patients uh, that have sepsis. Mm -hmm. So once you've got your sophisticated filtering technology, mm -hmm. you've already said this, but when, you know, once you know how to filter, you can begin to filter other things as well. So Absolutely. That's pretty cool. Okay. Thank you both for joining us. It's very interesting to talk to you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Leah. Your discussions with Dr. Fetterspiel and Dr. Kamaniva were truly interesting and insightful. If you'd like more information about Drs. Fetterspiel and Kamineva, please see the links on our site at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And don't forget to join us for our next podcast on new developments in regenerative medicine coming to you in September. If you have ideas for future podcasts or you'd just like to give us some feedback, please send us an email at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. We can't reply to individual emails, but we do welcome your suggestions. And let me remind you that we are not physicians, and we cannot provide diagnoses or medical advice. Thanks, Leah, and we hope our listeners will stay subscribed to the RSS feed of this podcast, sponsored by the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine, and you'll find us at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Please join us again in a few weeks for another interview.